All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to a special edition of the podcast. Uh, and I'm here with Kelly on the other end. Hey, y'all. And today we are going to talk about spiritual practices. Uh, this is something that has come up in the life of Mission Hills over the course of the last few years. And I thought it would be worth uh, the conversation to hop on the podcast and just kind of talk about uh, Kelly's experience with uh different kinds of spiritual practices, what that's looked like in community, and and then have her ask me some questions about uh, my experience with spiritual practices. Uh, what are they? What are practices that have been used? How can we approach them in the 21st century? And then how do we incorporate incorporate them in the life of, of Mission Hills? And, and what are the possibilities there? So that's kind of what we're going to do uh, on this podcast. And uh, I'll just throw it over to Kelly. Uh, you know, where would you start when you think about spiritual practices? Um, generally, do you think of your upbringing and, you know, kind of what kind of practices uh, do you think about when you hear spiritual practice? For me, the institution of the word just draws me into my individual practice for some reason. Like that's always where I kind of start. But as we've talked about before, there are both individual practices and then there's also the communal practices. Um, and some folks will even uh, separate that out into a third section of like missional and what does it look like to move forward and outward practices. Um, but for me, it was always growing up, it was an emphasis on what are you doing to make your faith great? And it's all of that, like, make your faith great again. And I hate that. Uh, but that's really, like, where it started. Um, and for me, there was a lot of uh, nervousness around mm. making sure that I was checking off boxes, that I looked like I was a good Christian. I kind of talked about that in our last special podcast about yeah, you, yeah, like, you, like, you, the perfect Christian. That's yeah, you mentioned in, Instagram spirituality. Yeah, if I remember, if I one. remember right. Oh, yeah. and I am guilty. I have taken the picture with my Bible open, highlighted verses with some kitschy. Yes, that was that was me. Um, and honestly, practices have taken a lot of different forms. Whether that is mm. in community with spaces of worship, um, or it looks like kind of abandoning some of them for periods of time when it was just too much, um, or I needed to kind of figure out some other aspects of my faith practice um, in kind of the general term. And so mm. even for me, I am in seminary now, but before that, I had to take a couple years off of like devotionals and spending any time in the biblical text because there's just so much wrapped up in my experience there with coming out, like why I was even required to read daily in the Bible, uh, coming from my good old Baptist upbringing. Um, and so it's been really interesting now having a sort of playfulness with my spiritual practice and what it means to me individually, that it can take forms of being out in nature and writing random pieces of uh, lyrics on top of the mountain or it can look like um, the art practices that I've kind of talked about before with some of the blogs. It can look like all sorts of things um, and there's a lot more creativity uh, that's outside of the limitations of what I thought practice had to look like or be like right. or sound like. So. Yeah. Yeah. I like that word playfulness because uh, I think in 
you know, similar experience to you. Um, that's not playfulness or creativity, uh, is not something that is typically, uh, encouraged in church environments or Protestant, especially like to our experience, just the broader Protestant Christian environment in our country. Uh, you know, coming up with things on your own or being able to kind of go outside the bounds of, like you'd mentioned, a devotional, for instance, uh, that's not something that is typically encouraged or it wasn't in my experience. Definitely. What about you? What has practices meant for you as part of your uh, spiritual transformation transformation? Yeah, it's it's definitely changed and evolved over time. Uh it's similar to you. I mean, growing up in, in Baptist world, you know, the Baptist hub, uh, you know, Baylor University in, in Waco, Texas, uh, there was a, in the, you know, especially the early 2000s, kind of as I was coming into Christianity, there was a heavy emphasis on uh, quiet time, if anybody's familiar with that type of a thing. But it was not, it was not explained really well. I mean, quiet time, it, it wasn't sort of like what I would, would think of now as like contemplative silence or something like that. It w- That was a time for you to read something where somebody told you sort of a behavioral kind of thing. So it was very prescriptive, whether that was a devotional or some kind of journal where it gave you a question and then you would have to kind of answer the question. Um, so that was very much the spirituality or the spiritual practices in some ways that I was first introduced to. Uh, and then luckily I had a lot of really great mentors in high school, uh, that opened up my world and imagination to, to things even outside the bounds of traditional Christianity or Christianity at all for that matter. So for me, um, it involved a process of, of integrating those kinds of things. Those, the more creative elements that I kind of used to see that I would now consider spiritual, right? But they were outside the bounds of church. And then bring, bringing those into, um, into a Christian perspective or um, just an overall spiritual life, I would say, has been that process of integration. And obviously, uh, you know, my undergrad in religion, you know, you pick up things and try on things and um, communi- community practices were, were really helpful, um, both individual spiritual practices and then um, things that I would do in church or with groups and that kind of thing. So um, all of those have been very formative over time and they just continue to grow and evolve and shape me. And I think it's helpful for to allow people to feel like they can try on things for a time or try out practices. And if it doesn't resonate or it's not useful, then, you know, like you said, uh, don't do it. You know, there's no, um, there's no one way to do any of this. Um, and it's more about what it brings about in, in your life and in the life of the community that I think is the important thing. So. Yeah. And I appreciate a word that you used in there of, the practices used to be prescriptive, which inherently is saying that there's something wrong, that there has to be something that is then fixed uh, through these different changes in behavior or what have you. And like I'm in the camp of all, all practices have some sort of purpose, right? But it doesn't have to always look like something that is outwardly or traditionally productive. Um, 
they can exist just for you and you don't have to show something for it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause I think that is one of the, the really big misunderstandings in kind of the, the broader world of church and Christianity today is that, um, there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. And therefore the spiritual practice is your mechanism to fix yourself. Uh, which we know is just, um, you know, the law reform that you'll never, you'll never be able to accomplish. You'll never be able to, to live up to it. And then we inherit a, a very kind of Americanized version of that. So, uh, it's something that has to be sold that you always have to sort of fall short of. You need to continue to accomplish something. So there's all of those kinds of elements to the Americanized version of spiritual practice or what it is to be in community with other people learning and growing. There's, there's that element of, Oh, you're just not quite there. And I think the way that you and I would talk about spiritual practice now, and especially in the context of mission Hills, is the opposite understanding, the understanding of that grace actually covers everything and you don't need to do anything. Yep. And that's, I think, the paradox of spiritual practice is that it can only be done personally or communally well from a perspective of, I actually don't have to, to do anything. I don't have to accomplish anything. Um, there's that deep, deep grace appreciate that a lot. And I don't know if I've shared the story before, but um, I remember sharing it at some discipleship meeting in college where I, my dad is a phenomenal watercolorist. Um, and I didn't do art in pretty much any form outside of sing until I was a freshman or a sophomore in college, because I had this idea in my head that well, I'm definitely not there. I'm definitely not good, but I had never even tried it. I had never even applied myself towards any form of art because I felt like there was this bar that I'd have to either hit right away or eventually hit in order for it to count. Um, right. And I then remember having a friend who like wasn't great at painting, but just loved it so much and didn't feel like she ever had to show anyone her paintings, but they brought her so much joy that it didn't even matter what they looked like or what, what it was or anything like that. And there wasn't this comparison game that was happening. And for me, I think that happens in our spiritual practices too, where we feel like we have to do it in a certain form. It has to look a certain way. Prayer has to look a certain way. It has to sound a certain way. Um, people are afraid of praying out loud in front of big groups because it's not going to sound all poetic. And Lord, power. Lord, could you just... Lord, just be here. Fill this just. space, God. <laughs> Fill this space. We know you are here, God, Father, God. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it just. We have this in our heads that there's a there is a, a prescription or there's a you know list yeah. out there um, formula. But sometimes you just have to pick up the damn brush and just try, mm -hmm. and maybe it will look better for you and what it needs to look like in your own practice. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I've told this, uh, a similar story before, uh, I've told it to you and it was a revelation that I had. Cause 
in, in Texas, I grew up just playing sports and never did anything artistic. And when I was 18, I was a part of a, a group of guys and every week we would have something that we would have to either journal about or explore. It was, um, it was not Christian in any kind of formal sense at all, but it was uh, a creative exercise. And then we'd gather every week and we'd go over and read poetry and we would have to write poetry and it didn't have to be good. It could just be like, it could be shit and it would be funny. And there was a freedom in that, but that opened up my mind to a world of self-exploration and expression that I didn't know was possible until that point. I was 18. Um, and you know, I, I'm still not a great musician by any means, but I would not be able to, to write music or to play music if I didn't have that permission to, to just be curious and explore. And literally you can make up anything. That was another revelation I had when I started playing music is I had this thought where like I could write anything. There are no rules to this. And even if I wasn't classically trained or professionally trained or anything like that in guitar or music, I could still do it. And that seems maybe super simplified, but it was a, it was a real revelation, I think, opened up my mind to, to the possibility of uh, human expression and spirituality. And a lot of my um, spiritual or numinous experiences are, have either been in, in nature or with music where you feel like you've tapped into something that is um, indescribable with words or that you could, you could ever replicate again. And I think that is, goes back to the prescriptive thing. Oh, I don't like, I don't like devotionals and those kinds of things is because they're trying to elicit something and the contemplative life or the experience um, in a true sense is something that can't be, it can't be elicited in that way. I think even great experiences in service to others or works of justice, they're usually these moments where things kind of converge and happen, or you have a connection with somebody um, that maybe you weren't expecting to have a connection with. You can't replicate that. You can't say, oh, well, let's as a community go to this place and build houses or or do whatever um, so that we can experience X, Y, and Z or whatever. It just doesn't work that way. It has to, it has to be natural and it has to be true. And sometimes something really special where the ego drops and you connect with somebody beyond what you ever thought possible happens. And I think that's another example of kind of how I've experienced, um, Christian spirituality and spiritual practice with a group. Um, but it's, it, it takes on a similar quality, I think. Oh, definitely. And if we only keep ourselves informed by what we already know or what we already mm-hmm. think, um, then we just kind of shut down all of those opportunities to experience the divine uh, cosmic connection between other people. And then, like, what are we kind of left in? We've almost trapped ourselves into it. And I think that across the board, whether it's with spirituality or other, um, the greatest thing that we can do is to keep being curious and to keep mm. seeking um, and to keep trying. And whether that's trying things on for a short time, like you said earlier, or um, just seeking to know another side of what it possibly could be. Um, that's a great yeah. jumping off point for what spiritual practice might then become for you. Yeah. And 
you and I have spoken about this before, but even even that idea of letting certain practices go or taking a break from Christian spiritual practice, um, it can be really helpful to to not read the Bible or to give yourself permission to to give up that because sometimes you know we've used that as a crutch or um, we have negative church experiences or things that complicate our relationship to the text and even giving yourself permission to step away from that in its own right can be a spiritual practice because it has become some kind of um, tool to produce something and then needs to be um, let go of for a while. Definitely. Um, Okay. So I had some initial thoughts. Um, You know, somebody had asked, okay, well, like how would you talk about uh, spiritual practices? And so I kind of bullet, I did bullet points to kind of give some thoughts. So if anything strikes you, feel free to stop me or to, um, to ask me to come back to. Okay. So some of my initial thoughts is, um, I would start with Christianity, uh, is an incarnational faith. So any Christian spiritual practice, um, should somehow involve or, um, benefit, your mind, body, and spirit, that it should be an embodied spiritual, um, that we don't just live in our minds and we don't just live in sort of an esoteric realm or the goal of spiritual practice is to escape the body or to, to achieve some sort of transcendent state that, uh, Christian spirituality is an embodied existence. Um, so that's first thought. Um, my second thought was along the, the same lines as, the, the text in the Gospels where Jesus says the kingdom of God is both within and among you. So there's a recognition of the divine within every person, but also needing the community as well. So there's a within and among. Both are necessary. Um, the mystery of Christian spiritual practice and contemplative life, which I kind of use interchangeably sometimes, um, we understand it as a, as a gift from God. So again, kind of what we were talking about, not, a, not something that we have to accomplish or do. We, we receive it, we experience it, but we don't inherently, we're not responsible for creating it. Okay, so uh, Christian spiritual practice is both inner work and outer work, and they can't be separated. So uh, sometimes I think we think of the idea of quiet time or devotional. Um, it's not an end in itself. That's the goal is to pr- produce some sort of outer work of service, devotion, love, uh, charity, etc. Uh, Christian practices, uh, it moves us. So this is a little woo woo. Uh, it moves us <laughs> into non-dual consciousness. So that means, um, non-dual consciousness means that it's not about absolutes, either ors, right and wrong. Um, I'm right somebody else is wrong, uh, and it's not concerned with other people as being a threat to my way of being or my way of thinking, our religion versus other religions, what my preferences are, what I like and don't like. Um, we don't see distinctions between our culture and, and the outside, etc. cetera. Um, so therefore, Christian spiritual practice uh, over time strips us of those dualistic frames of right and wrong and our ego, our sense of separateness. So we dissolve, 
it's just the same thing with music and like what we were referring to earlier. Our sense of self dissolves into the, the universal Christ or the experience of being fully alive. Oh, so I was, I recommend um, Thomas Merton to anybody, but just kind of even thinking about that, there's this line at the beginning of, of, this, uh, of this book, New Seeds of Contemplation, if you're listening on the podcast. Uh, and he says, contemplation, so Christian spiritual practice uh, broadly, is the highest expression of man's, uh, writing at a different time, uh, human's intellectual and spiritual life. It is life itself, life fully awake, fully alive, fully aware that it is alive. It is spiritual wonder. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, it is a more profound depth of faith, a knowledge too deep to be grasped by images and words or even clear concepts. It can be suggested by words, by symbols, but in the very moment of trying to indicate what, what it knows, the contemplative mind takes back what it has said and it denies what it has affirmed. For in contemplation, we know only by unknowing, or better, we know beyond all-knowing or unknowing. So that's a little woo-woo, but I think it gets to the idea that I'm trying to express with the the stripping of the ego, uh, the feeling of uh, truly connecting with another person or another group of people. Um, We dissolve away into the unity of all things. We, once we affirm something, uh, whether that's an idea or a theological concept, the contemplative mind then unaffirms that and we know differently. So, um, so that's, we might get a little woo woo. Um, Kelly, you're up next. Okay. Um, back to my initial thoughts. So Christian spiritual practice requires a beginner mindset. So we're always students. Um, we're always novices. We always keep that beginner mindset. If I was ever cool enough to pull off a tattoo, I would get like beginners, something like that. But I would just look, I would just look douchey. The long hair is enough. Okay, so always a beginner mindset. Christian practice um, is also it's it's paradoxical in that it's centering and decentering. So it is. It can be calming and it can be disturbing. It can be disruptive and it can be peacemaking. So Christian spiritual practice doesn't, it doesn't look one way and it doesn't produce, um, it doesn't always produce like great feelings. It can, it can bring up um, negative emotions and, and all kinds of things. So it, it is both centering and decentering. Christian spiritual practice, like we said earlier, it's attainable for everybody. Goes back to the beginner mindset. It's free. It's not about perfection in the in the accomplishment or achievement sense, but it's more of a descent. It's a path of death, little deaths over and over. I think it was Roar that always talks about, um, you know, the the process or the experience of sitting in silence is that you will fail. It is a bunch of mini failures over and over and over again. Um, so along that same line, it is um, it opens us to an awareness of already having everything we need. So even being in silence, it's simple but not easy. But over time, it produces the sense of, oh yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have to accomplish anything. I don't, I don't actually need anything. I'm here. I'm present. I'm breathing. 
So that's the concept of simple but not easy. Uh, Christian practice is inherently nonviolent and not self-righteous. Um, again, it's downward, it's earthy, it's life-giving. Um, union with Christ in love is kind of how contemplatives talk about um, the spiritual life. I think it always moves us into what Merton's talking about, a deeper awareness of being fully alive. Um, at Mission Hills, we always say it in our benediction, um, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. And so there's, in the contemplative mind, the reminder of life is a gift. I'm here. My task is to be fully aware that I'm fully alive. So um, it always brings us to the simple, the mundane, the human, rather than the esoteric, the ecstatic, the transcendent, the otherworldly, which is maybe we can have a conversation about that. We've talked about it um, in terms of music, but the, uh, the American Protestant notion of, well, you just got to get soul saved so that you can go somewhere else. The contemplative Christian life is not about going somewhere else, but being more present and fully alive here on earth with people. Um, so, okay, that's all I have to say on that. So those are just kind of my initial thoughts about Christian spiritual practice. Kelly, over to you. Incredible. I'm just going to be adding on uh, little bits here and there because I think you did an excellent job of just summarizing some of the kind of traditional aspects and then also that, like, moving forward, what can this look like out of the context that practices have existed in so far? Yeah. Um, because I think that there's there's so much more to come. Um, I think sometimes we are even limited by, um, and we'll get into it later, of like the naming of the practices that already exist. Um, mm. Because just like we don't have all the words to always describe the divine um, or our relationships with one another, we don't yet have all of the practices that will fully embody. Um, and for me, like practice means bringing us back to our body i think of the three things that you name of like mind body spirit the body is sometimes the hardest one to connect with because it doesn't always seem like it's the most important of those three not to put a hierarchy on them but it makes sense like spirit your mind you're in contemplative right like it's all right. it's all up here um but for me practice is always about bringing it back to my body bringing myself back to my body um and using that as like a vessel for spirituality. Um, mm. I think for me, my practices kind of operate in one or the other or both at the same time of either preparation or continuation. And I'll put it like an and in there as well. Um, usually when I'm engaging in a practice, it's either preparing me to enter a space, whether that's showing up into a patient room or uh, showing up for a service um, or showing up in a space that I'm going to do some soul work in, um, or it's that continuation piece, allowing mm -hmm. of wherever I left off, I'm going to stay there. I might move somewhere else. I'm not, I'm not on this like linear track necessarily. I don't want it to come across that way, but I might be doing some moving around. I might be doing some shuffling. Um, and the like always beginner mindset. Yeah. You also never arrive. Like we're not, we're not going to end up somewhere. There is no destination when it comes to practice. It's just 
maybe you're doing a shuffle to the left. Maybe so, you're doing a shuffle right. to the right. Like that's how I, <laughs> yeah. I operate more on that, like uh, close to far uh, spectrum than like right, wrong or destination beginning, all of that stuff. But yeah, when I was in high school, uh, I was a part of like an ecumenical youth group kind of thing on Thursday nights. And there was a group of charismatic people in this group. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know anything about, uh, charismatic spirituality or anything like that, but they were really intent on saying that I was not spiritual because I couldn't speak in tongues and that I had never heard God's voice audibly. And so I was way down on that spectrum still am. So I don't think I'll ever be able to live up to their level. Keyword their level, and that might not be higher than yours, but yeah. <laughs> all that to say. Um, but yeah, and then I think the only other thoughts that I had um, are that difference. You talked about like union in Christ and union in love. Um, and we got asked the question, and maybe we'll come back to it too, because I'd like to hear your thoughts of the difference between like what is union, what is communion. Um, and I think it. Mm kind of resembles a little bit about that like preparation and continuation piece that I mentioned of um, union is kind of like the essence of relationship and that divine grace says, right? Like you don't have to do anything to show up in that union. You don't have to achieve anything to show up in that union. Um, But I think that communion can be fashioned as a response, not one that's required, but it's a holding of space for community, for one another, um, and it's just that continuation piece of something that is already there. Um, right. But yeah. Yeah. The, the question about union. Um, so someone had asked if what's the difference between the idea of union and communion. And, I, and I'm sure you could take that uh, question in a variety of, of different ways. Um, and maybe the simplest way that I would initially think about it is that idea of abiding grace that you had talked about a few weeks ago. That's something that exists whether or not we feel it or not. And I think in my, in my mind, the first thing that comes to mind is um, communion is the, those moments that I talked about where things converge and you have this sense of being a part of something larger, the story of God and the universe and the body of Christ, you know, whatever language you want to uh, use. And to me, that is, those are like moments of communion uh, where you, you're experiencing something both at, at the deepest level within you and also outside of you. Um, the union you can feel, I think, feel that as in a sense of communion. But that is something that always exists, whether or not we experience it or feel it. Um, That sort of divine union of Christ and um, the Spirit being in in within all of us and among us, uh, that idea of the kingdom of heaven is both within and among. That is that kind of abiding grace that is... I think the divine union within us. And so that's kind of how I think of, of those two words. I don't know. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, which brings me just something super random and bringing out my uh, class from like two years ago on uh, pastoral care and practice. Um, 
I think it's Bonhoeffer who talks about um, there's there's different types of ministry, and he mentions like meekness, um, listening, things like that. But one of the ones that he mentioned is like the ministry of bearing, um, mm-hmm. of like bearing space for one another, um, bearing Christ within yourself. And I think that that ties in a lot well um, with kind of your separation of union and communion there. Yeah. Um, and it's that, I mean, all of those spiritual paradoxes kind of go into this conversation of, um, you know, what, what is the, the difference between experiencing the absence and experiencing the presence of God? Like you, you can, you can experience this negation as, as a presence or as a, an experience of being fully alive. I think many times, uh, in, in my life where I've had what I would consider even spiritual experiences or intense experiences of being fully alive weren't always the best experiences that you, I would might even characterize them as feeling very distant from God. But then if you think about that in the, in the sense of experiencing the absence of God, um, whether that's, um, in sort of a Job like scenario, um, that is no less an ex- a spiritual experience or no less a Christian contemplative experience. Um, and it goes with the, the knowing and the unknowing. Um, one of the texts that I've lived with for a while is the cloud of unknowing. And you read a lot of paradoxes in that, in that text. Um, it's a mystical text um, about having to to go into the cloud of unknowing in order to experience the divine it's a it's a it's a hard book to read especially if you read it in the old english which i don't recommend um it's like reading chaucer it's not it's hard it's really i don't recommend it unless you're a british literature scholar or something um but those are the kinds of i don't know the christian deep cuts that i i i recommend because they're like um, you know, we have such a, like a toolbox or, um, it's like, if you think about like, it's like spiritual Netflix. I mean, there's so many things to, to read and to watch and to observe and to learn from, uh, that you can pick up stuff and some things are going to resonate with you and other things won't resonate with you. Some practices resonate with people and other practices don't. So, um, those are the kinds of things, and I'll put some recommendations and different books in the show notes um, in case people want to look at it. But um, that I think the play back to the playfulness idea of being open to to that kind of stuff. Um, all right, let's move on to well, what's actual been on, yeah practices like what's yeah. been on your spiritual Netflix or what's been on Mission Hills. Yeah, what a dumb, what a I like, dumb I've been metaphor. That <laughs> no, it's terrible. All right, we're not going to say spiritual Netflix anymore. That was stupid. Everyone needs to say it all the time. Yeah, yeah. that's bad. I take it back. Um, but like, what okay, has been so, fulfilling stuff for you? Yeah, um, so, I, so I tend to do... Um, readings, um, in particular, like just short readings of scripture is something that like, I rarely, 
I mean, it's it's like so. So had mentioned on Sunday that she likes reading, you know, full books of the Bible. I rarely read anymore. Uh, I'm not in school anymore. No one makes me uh, re- makes me read full books of the Bible. Um, and so, a lot of times, I'll just do either lectionary readings each week and use those as kind of a meditative thing, or I kind of I'll take the lectionary and try to find themes and kind of just. I'll either on runs, mostly mostly on runs, and just kind of bounce around ideas of themes and connections, things I hadn't noticed before, which we do sometimes even at, at Mission Hills. You know, we ask a lot of times, you know, what do you notice? What stands out to you? Um, and those, I think, are helpful ways to to even encourage people to to think for themselves and to have to give themselves permission to to find things in the text as opposed to well, uh, I wonder what so-and-so thinks about this, or I wonder what uh, commentators say about these texts. Um, so I think that kind of curiosity is something that um, is still really helpful for me. Uh, I'm really bad at it, but I've been trying to... One thing quarantine has done for me is given me a lot more time for meditation. I... I know caveat all the stuff about how you you know you're not supposed to be good at meditation. I am really bad at meditation, and I get that that's the point, but I'm I'm working on it. So uh, I try to meditate a couple of times a day, um, even if it's just for five or ten minutes. Um, sometimes I'll do three or four short meditations, either guided. They can be secular or um, Christian in some kind of sense where they have, uh, scripture or some kind of Lectio Divina reading. Um, and then centering prayer is the other one that I is, uh, it's not a meditative technique, but we've practiced it a lot at Mission Hills where you, you spend time in silence, you have a sacred word, you return to the sacred word. Uh, that was started by Thomas Keating, uh, in the 1960s, 70s. And that is, I think, a really helpful, at least for me, it's been a helpful, you know, contemplative practice. And he would be really quick to say that it's not a technique, it's a, it's a form of prayer. So it's, not, it's different than body work or breath work or something like that, um, which is also really helpful. Uh, and so, yeah, centering prayer for me has been probably the one easy contemplative, uh, prayer practice that I, I typically do, um, as opposed to, um, I'm really, I'm not, I don't like journaling or anything like that. I know a lot of people like prayer journals and that kind of thing. I've never, if you look at any of my journals, I've written in the first two pages of all of them. That's it. The first two pages have something written down. Um, usually very four-ish on the Enneagram. Uh, and that's about it. So for me, just in my personality and who I am, if I can kind of get outside of my, uh, thinking mind or my worrying mind, um, get outside, uh, I like to hike and, um, go for runs. Um, those are the kinds of things that are most helpful to me as a set of personal spiritual practices. Um, yeah. So I don't know. 
that uh, there's probably more that I have or, or do, but those are the things that come to mind uh, right uh-huh. now. I think it's interesting that you frame it like you have to get out of like those specific minds of yours. So for me, it's all about like I exist so much out here in like distracting myself in you know, running away from having to exist too much in my mind. That's the mm-hmm. seven nature in me that like contemplative practices are what bring me back into that headspace and into a space where I feel like I can actually do reflection that will maybe turn it into action later on. But for the most part, it's about the slowing down and it's about the yeah. sitting, which is very, very hard to sit yeah. in a space and, especially with meditation, I always have to tell myself that whenever I think I'm done with it, I have to go another three minutes. And that's not saying like force yourself to do practices. I just know that for me personally, I say I'm done way before I would actually benefit from that space. Usually it's like, Oh, well I did my five minutes and now I'm going to, get up and go do that thing that I was thinking about for those whole five minutes. Um, when I don't know if you ever experienced this on a run, but I've had it before where I'll just get this weird cramp around like mile two and I'm going out for like a 10 mile run. And I'm so annoyed at the cramp that I'm getting at mile two. And all I can do is think about it, but then I'll get to mile three and it's gone. And I just had to work mm. through that uncomfortable period for a little bit until I finally got into the space that will actually make me a better runner will give me a farther distance will push me harder um so that's just something that's yeah. come up for meditation for me yeah and I think that goes for for not only any spiritual practice but just any practice I mean whether it's whether you're learning any kind of skill to play the guitar or to do yoga or to learn how to meditate uh, or just be able to sit in silence as a form of meditation. You're not going to be good. Whatever it is you're doing, if you haven't run in two years and you go out for a run, you're not going to go run for 10 miles. I guarantee you, unless you're Dean Carnazes. So uh, it takes practice. So being able to to be a beginner, to, to kind of always go back to the practice, um, that's something that you know, Andrea is taught in yoga over and over again. It's a practice. You're always practicing. And I think that's helpful to remind ourselves, even in Christian spiritual practice, that that's all it is. It's a practice. Um, You're practicing to become a, hopefully a better, more loving human being in the world. And like you said, I think that's helpful even to, to distinguish how different personalities, like my personality need something different than your personality. And that spiritual practice is going to look different depending on um, what it is that we kind of need to balance in our world. Because for me, it's always, um, it's either constant thinking or um, worry or anxiety or getting wrapped up in uh, the, the internal world that then I have to kind of break out of or it's um, planning and accomplishing. So a lot of times when I sit down to do a prayer meditation, um, centering prayer, anything like that, I will suddenly magically think of all the things that I have to do that I hadn't thought of. And I'm like, damn, I should write that down because 
I knew there was something that I needed to do or I was thinking I needed to do this week or I needed to call somebody. And as soon as I sit down quiet enough, I get that cramp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Um, but it is, for me, that's, that's kind of how I experience a lot of those um, cramps or roadblocks is um, it's either my thinking mind or the planning mind or accomplishing. And I know a lot of people out there, if, if you've done any kind of prayer or meditation, extended kind of practice, you will, you'll get a sense for what happens to you when you start sitting in silence for a while. Um, not everybody's going to have the same experience and not every, not for everybody, uh, something different is going to arise and come up. Um, and I think it's just, it's being again, curious and playful to notice what arises. Okay. I'm thinking about, um, all the things that I should, I should do or should accomplish. Um, that is my posture towards the world that there's something about, um, who I am and maybe even how my, how I kind of consider my own worth in uh, how many different things I need to, to do or figure out this week. Um, and it's a problem solving mindset. Okay. You notice that and then you kind of, you kind of grow through that. So, um, I think that's a helpful distinction to make that whatever your whatever practice you're engaging, if things come up or things are difficult, you just push, you push through and keep going that that's, that's a natural part of it. What are, what are other practices? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask you what practices have been helpful to you lately. Oh, goodness. Well, I think that actually goes along really well with what I was about to say too. Um, I found that I have two different kinds of practices and I don't like that. I'm sure there are ones that fit somewhere in the middle, but uh, some are emptying and some are filling or sustaining. Um, and for one of my classes, uh, it was the pastoral theology one. Uh, part of our final was naming, like, what are your sustaining practices? Because there are going to be times where you're going to be emptied out by just the nature of ministry. What's going to keep you going? Um, but I also need practices that empty my mind. And so whether it's like, literally, I've had that experience where I've sat down all of a sudden, of course, all of the things that I've been forgetting about for a day come to my mind. And I will literally just take the time to like write out every single thought that pops in my head until I finally feel empty. And I'm like, all right, now we can start. Now we can do that. Um, Because I think right now, just within the midst of there's so much uncertainty, there's so much unknown. Usually it's in the forms of what if questions, um, like what if this happens? What if that happens? Um, And like putting those on a piece of paper, saving them for later when you maybe have more capacity to look at them and think, oh, maybe this isn't really a real question. That's just my mind popping up. Um, But I think, especially as we have been separated, I've noticed more of a need for those communal practices, whether that's um, the practice of like having a a meal over Zoom with friends that I haven't connected with, whether we are doing that in like a spiritual lens or not, doesn't really matter. Uh, I think it's more just the act of being in community um, can sometimes be enough and we can make meaning of that later on. But sometimes when we think again, it goes back to that original, like, Oh, it has to do something 
no, you can just mm-hmm. exist in it and you yeah. can apply, you can reflect, you can do all of that work later. Um, just be present in the space that you're in. Um, I've mentioned before things like Tuesday prayer have always been really helpful. So those good old Jesuits uh, have me back as far as some of the contemplative practices that I've done. Um, yeah. And a lot of it has been in the form of retreats and I, you know, you take two to three days to run away to the woods and go do all that practice. And right. uh, I think the downfall of that can look like, okay, cool. You did that for two to three days and now you have, you were not taught how to bring that back into your day-to-day life when it is a lot harder to force right. yourself to sit down. Um, are you saying you're just riding that camp high? Oh my gosh. That's, <laughs> those are the words that came to my head right as I said it. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it's too real. Um, yeah. yeah. Quiet time was camp literally high. part of our camp schedule. Mm. You know, everyone went off to their own corner. You, most people, honestly, they were so tired. They would just find a nook and like pretend to read and would fall asleep for 30 minutes because totally. Cause it was always at like six 30 in the morning. Yes. The first thing my brain is not capable of thinking any kind of real thought until like an hour after I've had my coffee. Yeah. Um, if any, well, and if anybody's ever led high schoolers or junior hires on a camp to a camp or retreat, you know what you're dealing with. You're not going to get great results out of a 14 year old at seven in the morning. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, but I think it's funny because now like forcing myself to be quiet and to shut up is actually some of the most important time that I've gotten most recently. Um, I've had plenty of time for it in the midst of our current reality, but and even those kinds of things, uh, sorry to interrupt, but like even thinking about um, those kind of campy, uh, retreat, quiet time, even as a concept is not a bad, it's not a bad concept or even to, to try to get uh, teenagers to go out and to, to spend some quiet time alone. That is a, a good thing, but it's also the way that it's taught and approached and and sort of handed to you, I think, uh, at least in my experience, wasn't always the most helpful. And then you think about it now, and you think, okay, well, that's actually a good practice. It's just the way it was, um, it was just the way that was offered to two kids um, is not the most graceful, I don't think. It literally asked the question once you got back, all right, what'd you get out of quiet time? And I wish the question was framed. Like, I, don't, I don't remember that. I never asked oh, my kids that. Oh, but. that was that was our camp experience of like. What did you okay, get? You did it. Well, what? What'd you what get did out you get? Like, oh, I realized this like super high level complex thing about God in the span of thirty minutes. You're right, and you'll carry that forever with you now. Um, yeah. You'll have no problem remembering that for the rest of your life. But I wish the question was more framed of like. Hey, what'd you try? Like, I'd love to have that dialogue about what's working for you. What's not, what, you know, hope maybe that opens up the question of what do you believe about practice? What do you not? Um, but yeah. Which is a, you know, kind of leads us into some of the, the questions as we think about um, spiritual practices and communal practices in relation to mission Hills and, and even kind of thinking, well, how, how do we teach, these things and, and talk about these things at Mission Hills, how would you 
try to teach this to, to children or to youth age kids. Um, I don't know what, what, I mean, you already kind of just said some of your thoughts on that, but what would be another thing that you would try to say if you had, um, if you had the opportunity to, to teach this to a, a group of young people, um, what would be your approach? I honestly might even go for the cafeteria approach of here are all of these different ways and we're not even going to put a stop on the end of it and say like that these are the only ways, right? Because um, I think of kids who are, some kids are like, this is your sport. This is the thing. This is the music, you know, thing that you are going to do forever. It's part of the family legacy. Like you don't get a choice. But then there are other kids who are like for six months, they're trying this sport. And then six months, they're trying this one, three months of this one. And sometimes they're like, none of these. I didn't like any of them. Sorry about it. Like parent, my beat. Um, <laughs> right. Or they're like, I love snowboarding with everything I have. I'm going to become a professional snowboarder, whatever. Um, and sometimes I think like that that's okay to kind of try all those things out. And there isn't this pressure of you have to be this one thing. They're just excited mm. that you found a thing that you love and cherish and it has created meaning in your life. Um, so I think with kids, that's, that's an okay approach to take. Um, yeah. And like, I know that there's, you know, there's a different uh, kind of uh, meaning to the word of cafeteria Christian, which we don't have to get into. Uh, Wait, I don't know what it is. Oh goodness. This was, this is what a lot of folks in my background were shamed for of they're called cafeteria <laughs> Christians um, where they would show up, you know, and they would pick this piece of Christianity that they liked and this piece of Christianity that they liked and they kind of leave the rest behind. And they're ashamed for that of you either take it all and you eat your veggies uh, and you, you know, struggle through it with the rest of us. Yeah. Um and uh, <laughs> with yeah. the rest of us, <laughs> with the rest of us. Um, but I think that not everything in the spirituality that we're handed works for us. What a concept! We are all different humans. We all bear different images of God. Um, there's something unique that you are, you know, showing to the world as someone relating to the divine in a different way um, versus kind of. All right, take your slop, go, go eat it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even, even along with that, um, things have to be reinterpreted and re-explained, uh, for, for the time that we live in, um, that you draw from the tradition, but you also, you, you modernize it and you explain things differently and, you, you talk about it differently, you relate to it differently. So, um, I think, I think cafeteria Christians, a funny, a funny term. I'll have to sit on that for a while, but, um, but yeah, I think if, if you're not, if you're not sampling things, if you're not, if you're not embracing, um, and being willing to throw out what, what is not useful anymore, um, then I think you're just wasting a lot of time. Um, and even just like to get per, some, some personal, uh, for me working in, in church space is, is something that I, 
I don't know if I really anticipated I'm doing it for in, in the capacity that I do it at Mission Hills all the time. Uh, I have to get outside of the bounds of church life and Christianity to, to even feel some semblance of who I am and what is life outside of all kinds of just churchy Christian language all the time. And maybe that's just my experience. Maybe that's just me. Uh, but if I'm constantly just drinking from this fire hose of things that just sound Christian all the time, I get so annoyed and tired of it. So I, I find myself having to, to take regular um, time off, every, definitely every week and every day uh, to a certain degree to, to listen to other things, to, to not think in sort of Christian language or Christian terms. And so, um, I don't know if that, if that's helpful or if that goes to, to the point of having to take breaks or giving people permission to step away from the Bible or traditional spiritual practices. But I think that is in immensely, uh, helpful for me to, to back away from, um, from that kind of same old language all the time. Um, so I think that might be, that might be another approach as well that is helpful. I think one of the other questions um, that I found interesting was how do you know when to start a spiritual, traditional spiritual practice of learning? Mm. How do you know if it's working and then when to stop? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The question. Okay. So um, how do you know when to start a traditional. Um, I think if you're if you're looking for spiritual practices, um, then you'll you'll find something that that works for you. So if you know, so a lot of it requires uh, you know somewhat of a, a I think a seeker mindset to begin with, because uh, if somebody says, "Hey, here's a spiritual practice, you should do this, do this," it's not gonna be any good for you. It won't, it won't work in that. It's just another prescription. Hey, like Ryan, the pastor is going to write you your spiritual prescription. Take your centering prayer twice in the morning, you know, once in the morning, once at night. So that, um, if that's your relationship to it, then it probably, uh, isn't going to be something that's going to be very helpful. So I think, how do you know when to start, uh, you know, a traditional or kind of, a something that has been passed in the, when it's, uh, I think someone says traditional, I think that's kind of what I take it to mean is something that comes from, you had mentioned Jesuits or, you know, Franciscans or Benedictine or, you know, any kind of one of these, um, perennial wisdom traditions, uh, is what we mean when we, when we say traditional. So yeah, start, start one when you find something that appeals to you. I mean, there's a lot of different practices out there. Um, and then how do you know if it's working? Now, that is a harder question, I think, because um, a, lot of, a lot of spiritual practices, you know, just to use centering prayer as one example, uh, teachers of centering prayer will say that you won't feel anything. So you're not trying to, in sitting in silence, have some sense of connection with God or um, transcendent experience or any kind of a static feeling in your, in your body or in your mind. So 
I think a lot of people give up on those kinds of practices because we're, we're kind of conditioned to think of, well, I should be able to see it working very obviously. And I think in most traditional spiritual practices, um, you won't really notice those kinds of things for years, like whether or not you're, you're becoming a more compassionate, loving person. Um, that's a life's work. Um, and so if something feels, the other question was when to stop, uh, if something feels, uh, laborious or you just really hate doing it or you're, it just makes you, uh, an asshole, then stop. Uh, I forget who said it at Mission Hills, but we've, it's stuck with me for, for a couple of years. But, uh, the quote was, if, if reading the Bible makes you more of an ass, then stop reading the Bible. Um, so, so that is kind of my general approach to the when to stop question. If, if you notice yourself being sort of physically upset by something, or you're just becoming angry, uh, then stop, find, find something else and, and keep exploring. Um, so yeah, that'd be kind of my take on that question. Should we go to the next one? Okay. So the next question is, uh, well, we kind of already answered that. Is it okay to not do a Christian spiritual practice because of church baggage, past experiences, et cetera? Uh, do you want to kind of just quickly touch on that one? I think, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's definitely okay to not do it. And I think that if there's anything in you that is even causing you to kind of question that it's okay to take a break. I also don't think that like just because you've transformed like where you feel like you are in your spirituality doesn't mean that the practice itself has come along with you. Like for me, reading the Bible again, it still held a lot of those same things. Like I had to do some extra working through stuff to be able to feel like, oh, this is actually helping me in my new space that I'm occupying in my like spiritual journey. It's okay to give those things a rest. They don't all have to come with you. They can transform too. Um, but yeah, I think that especially when it, it comes down to something that is really traumatizing or just really carries a lot of pain, um, please stop hurting yourself with practices. So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, I back up all of that. So, you know, don't, uh, if there's uh, baggage uh, attached to certain things, uh, but you still have a desire to explore Christian spirituality, um, then talk to somebody who is going to, is not going to weigh you down with more baggage, um, and be, be in relationship to people that are going to give you a lot of love and a lot of grace would be my recommendation there. All right. What do we have next? I think a lot of these we have kind of talked about with like Instagram spirituality, um, like how is it talked about in American churches? I think that, yeah, there are those benchmarks and we're trying to avoid that. Um, Yeah. The the question there, you know, um, kind of talked about how American churches um, have a a notion of sort of obtaining a worthiness for, for God and ourselves and others. So whether that's to, I think appeal holy, uh, some idealized version of ourselves. I think there's a lot of uh, notions in American Christian spirituality of, um, I think the word that I grew up with was sanctification. 
and it's not sanctification in the kind of classic or in the classic sense, but the theological sense, which is the spirit working within your life. It's a gift of grace, but sanctification in the way that it was kind of brought up in churches was whether or not you were going to become a better person worthy of your idealized version of yourself and who you should be, because you should be holy, like whatever that um, image is. So I think uh, it's important to make the distinction that that is not what Christian spirituality is trying to do. That's a grand missing of the point to try to live up to some version of worthiness, whether that's for yourself or other people. Um, what else do we have, Kelly? Uh, well, this is a big question that might need a separate uh, podcast, but okay. what do you think of the exodus from the church and towards a la carte spirituality? Uh, yeah, so I think that even might be kind of what you mean by cafeteria Christian. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's how I know of the notion of a la carte spirituality is um, you know, the tendency now we're in the world of, um, online, uh, teachings and podcasts and courses. And I mean, we, you really can create a, a kind of spirituality that works for you. I think I have two thoughts on it. One, like we said earlier, I think that's a really good thing. I think more giving people more options and more freedom and the ability to access the perennial wisdom traditions in a way that no one else in human history has been able to learn and to access and try things on. I think that is a tremendous freedom that is helpful, hopefully to um, humanity and the planet, broadly speaking. My second thought is the negative thought that um, the a la carte spirituality, if it's not embodied and practiced in community, then it's missing basically half of its um, potential that the body of Christ. Uh, I wrote this quote down uh, from Roar that I think is pretty funny. Uh, he says, you know, a Christian is someone who has met one. So there is this notion of Christian spiritual practice that it has to be done in community. So whether or not you, you like the church or you don't like the capital C church, um, find a group of people that are trying to work out this way of Jesus and way of being in the world um, in community. Because if it is just a la carte spirituality where um, you're listening to a podcast or you're doing a, a personal practice, um, you're not getting the whole, you're not getting the whole thing. Um, and so I think the Jesus tradition teaches us that um, this way of being uh is is only fully expressed in the life and the heart of the community because um, you on your own are always going to be somewhat um, self-deceptive, I think. I think there's no way around it. So you need the community to, to, to teach you and to balance you and to um, show, show God to you. Um, otherwise, it just becomes sort of a, I think, a self-righteous, selfish endeavor or it can be a lot of times so that's kind of what anything you would add to that um only i mean it brings in part of the conversation we had on sunday um associate of like there are certain amazing 
endeavors that have come out of kind of the state of the church, it's, it's required a more creative um, space mm-hmm. to kind of evolve. There are pub churches, there are like worship nights that meet in bars. There are all like all of these different new or old because honestly they reflect a lot of, I think early church um, forms of, of spaces. And I think that it's a, those, those are beautiful and those are super creative and it's it kind of sucks a little bit that it's better or Environment, um, that these spaces have become necessary, but I think it's done a lot of opening up of what it can mean to be a part of community. It doesn't have to look like uh, the church that, you know, has been around. Um, and I think that that's, that's some of the, the exodus is happening just because the form of church has not shifted all the way that it's needed to, to meet the needs of folks who are in the Christian tradition right now. Um, so if it, if it's an exodus from like that church and then moving us into better spaces, I'm not mad about that. Um, but I think you're right that it still has to, you still have to partake in some form of community, um, in order to really have that fullness happen. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe I should have clarified my answer on the first bit of that. I think the exodus from the church as we're talking about it is great. Uh, that uh, capital C church that is um, financially motivated and uh, needs to seek the preservation of the institution at whatever cost that is typically more about lights and loud music and marketing and all that kind of stuff. Um, That is an Americanized version of like a group of people that, I mean, not to say that everybody that goes to a church like that is a bad person or, or anything like that. But, um, the exodus that we see from that kind of church that is very bright and very loud. Um, I think that's a great thing. Uh, and I think moving to more intimate, small, honest, uh, silent contemplative communities, um, in, in that kind of way that seek justice is, is the way that um, is a way that the church can reimagine itself um, in very powerful ways, um, and yeah. So I think the exodus from the church is good. I want to jump to something that goes off of kind of what you're talking about there, of like seeking justice. Of what's the difference between practice and service? Can they be both at the same time? Yes. So. Um, the difference between practice and service, so service, um, and I think in the way maybe this question is, is being asked, uh, is a practice. So um, charity, uh, devotion to the other, um, finding God in the poor, the oppressed, and marginalized, that is a Christian practice. Acts of justice that move us beyond uh, to to create, again, the beloved community, not only within our small circle, but within humanity, um, to have justice roll down like rivers. I mean, that idea of grace um, starting small and ending up just um, um, like sort of rolling on from there is, I think, an act is a, an act of Christian practice that can be done individually and hopefully in the, in the community. What do you think? Yes. Yeah. I don't really have much to add to that. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, and even just thinking of, um, you know, community, 
um, it's, I think, important to, to talk about values around practice. And, and I can list some of these uh, later, but thinking about community and, and liturgy and stability, those are all kind of values that I think the, the local church can really embody as, a, as an act of service to both the, the church community and the, the neighborhood and the city, whatever the, the group of people find their context to be. Um, stability as caring about the place, the place and the people. So living in a place, knowing a place and caring about that place. Um, there's a quote from, uh, oh, I forget who it was. Mm, I'll think of it later. But the quote is, uh, a spirituality that works for me cannot save me. And I think about that quote in relation to, to this question, a spirituality that works for me cannot save me, that you actually have to have something that works for, for others as well. And then others have to work into your life. So, um, kind of going maybe a little bit off of the, the, the early question about a la carte spirituality needing community. Cause if it just works for me, then it's always going to be in, inward and personal in the wrong way. Um, and if it's always going one direction, uh, there's a song I can't remember. There's a quote that I one point ripped off and wrote a song on, and I'm trying to think of the, the lyric, but it's um, love is not looking at each other, but it's moving in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that might um, kind of go along with this uh, as well, that um, we're not in love trying to have something ref- like our... Um, narcissistic image reflected back at us, but we're moving with a group of people in a, in a, in a way, in a direction. And so, um, I like that idea of love. That's an awesome image. Um, any other questions? That's it. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you around spiritual practices or that you would offer up as a, as a place to kind of close us or? I mean, I think that, you know, we can spend, we can spend so much time naming, right. Uh, outwardly what all the different practices are. I'm sure we can leave a list somewhere of like, these are things that we've done, um, Mm -hmm. kind of just like a, a straight up bullet point list even of like, this is what happens in community. Like these are practices and whether you've realized it or not, like this is a practice. Uh, we can leave a list of, of things that have, have worked for either of us, but really like this is not a closed conversation uh, at all. And I think that something that both of us push for, especially in the space of Mission Hills is that we want to continue to embody uh, different practices and to be pushed. And um, something I loved that, like, so she mentioned on Sunday about the way that Pub Church practiced communion um, was that whoever was kind of in charge had the freedom to embody that practice in whatever way that they felt like they connected. And that doesn't mean that everyone in the room is going to have a spiritual experience from that. But I think just the freedom, um, to, to share that, to continue to be curious about what might else be out there, uh, to keep a playful spirit with it. It doesn't have to look like you drowning in hundreds of pages of text and writings over and over again of 
this is what this practice means to me. Um, it doesn't have to look like that. And, um, I think that's all that. Yeah, I think that's a great place to, to even wrap it up because, um, you know, one thing that we harp all the time at Mission Hills on is really holding an imperfect space for each other and recognizing that. And a lot of that is just trying to set a set a space and set a tone for people that are in different places and that come from different spiritual experiences. And there is that curiosity and that playfulness. Um, and there are things that I enjoy sharing. Um, and I hope when you or I share something that is meaningful or helpful to us, that we're not by any means saying, this is what you need to do, or um, this is somehow a, a better practice or a, a state that needs to be achieved by everybody in the community. It is, hey, here's a really interesting thing that we discovered um, that's in the tradition or that has been meaningful to us. Um, what do you think of this? Like, what is your experience with this? And um, I think whenever whether it's worship or whether it's spiritual practices or liturgy. Um, as a community, I, I like that posture of um, curiosity and being beginners. Um, but there is, a, there is a rhythm to it, and, and, and that's something that I'll share. I'll put in the show notes, but um, that we do practice these kind of rhythms because to bring it back to Sochi, and then we'll, we'll close. You know, she had mentioned that even in a liturgy, there are pieces that are flexible and there are pieces that give a, give a sense of rhythm and to relate it to a song. It's, um, there are, there are parts of songs that the melody is, um, expansive or free flowing. And then there is structure within the music. And whenever you're listening to a song, hopefully you're just caught up in the beauty of the song rather than noticing um, that it has some sort of form and structure. And so when I think about us as Mission Hills practicing these different things or trying on these things, I hope we experience it more like a song that we're caught up in rather than um, analyzing or critiquing its form. Um, and, and that idea from Thomas Merton about the really the purpose of all of this is so that we can be compassionate, loving people and live with a deeper awareness that we're here and fully alive and that we get to participate in, in the work of justice and the work of community and the work of Christ together as a group for however long uh, we're here. And that's a beautiful thing. And so whatever spiritual practices we're trying on in the day, the week, the month, or the year, I think hopefully that's the goal that's communicated. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I guess we'll end there. Kelly's giving me the finger guns. So we will, we will wrap it up there. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, well, uh, I didn't want to add anything else and I've ruined it by the finger guns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. Well, thank you for listening. If you've made it this far and thank you to Kelly for hopping on and sharing your wisdom and experience and seminary training and everything else with us. And uh, we will close it there and we will see you soon, friends. Cheers. Cheers.